On March 11th, in what Chancellor Exchequer Rushi Sunak called, quote, the biggest business tax cut in modern British history, the UK introduced a new, quote, super deduction into its finance bill, which would allow companies investing in qualifying new plant and machinery assets to reduce their taxable income by 130% of the cost of those investments. Will the tax breaks fulfill their lofty goals to boost the UK economy and balance public finances while turning the nation into a global scientific superpower today on the Fiona Show R&D Tax Credit? We seek to answer just that question, and to help us do so, I'm going to hand things off to the Director of R&D Tax Incentives at Cross Border Solutions, Raheem Walji. Raheem, you have the floor. Thank you, Matthew. Really appreciate that. Before we get started, I'd like to welcome our guest, Sam Dimitriou, who's the Research Director at the Entrepreneurs Network. Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on and would love if you could start off by telling a little bit about your interest and background in tax. Sure. So I am Research Director at the Entrepreneurs Network. We're a think tank that looks at policy issues to do with entrepreneurship, innovation, tech, We've done a range of reports and we've covered everything from tax to the immigration system to the education system and how that affects entrepreneurship. We're also the all-party parliamentary group for entrepreneurship's secretariat. And through that, we published a report a few years back on tax reform for entrepreneurs. We also published a report with CODEC, who are the UK sort of startup trade body called the Startup Manifesto, and that covered a lot of issues to do with R&D and tax, in particular looking at the scope of R&D tax credit, which is kind of the live issue, I think, on R&D policy in the UK. My other interest in sort of tax comes from, I used to previously be at a think tank called the Adam Smith Institute. While I was there, and I'm still a fellow of the think tank, I wrote about the importance of full expensing, the idea that investments in plants and machinery shouldn't be penalised through the tax system if they're made via equity. So that was a key issue that I pushed there. And as, as we mentioned, the super deduction is kind of taking what I suggested and going a bit further, but it's a little bit more complicated, which I'm sure we'll get to. Thank you very much for that wonderful introduction and looking forward to picking your brain and getting a little bit of that expertise out into this podcast so that our audience can learn from it. So let's dive right in. In the past, you know, the UK has been leading the charge for lower corporate tax rates, but the finance bill that Matthew talked about, you know, that was introduced on March 11th is actually going to raise the tax rate from 19% to 25% for companies with over 250,000 in, in turnover beginning in, I believe, April 2023. What's the intention behind, for lack of a better word, this corporate tax hike? I think what you have to understand is while we've had the same party leading government since 2010 in terms of the Conservatives, since 2019, maybe even a bit earlier in 2017, the party has shifted somewhat in their general political philosophy. And that's because they've started appealing to voters outside of their sort of traditional strongholds, which is sort of the leafier parts of London and the southeast. And now they're getting a real appeal in the north and the Midlands in particular. And those voters tend to hold more economically interventionist views. 
And so I think you could see this recently. So we recently had a by-election in Hartlepool, which has been Labour since its inception and it would be considered a safe seat not too long ago. And that went Conservative. So it's trying to appeal to those voters. But at the same time, there's also part of the government's branding economically is in terms of fiscal credibility. They effectively won the argument on austerity that governments have to live within their means and that you cannot run large deficits. Obviously, the result of the coronavirus is going to be a large deficit. So part of their argument is they don't want to fall into the trap of after making the case that we need to be fiscally responsible for so long to then leave with quite significant deficits for the next four or five years. So they want to begin that process of fiscal retrenchment. And I think because they've got this new voter base, a lot of the other ways they might have previously considered raising tax, for instance, putting up fuel duty, which is a popular revenue raiser that has actually been frozen for the past sort of six or seven years. They're instead looking at corporation tax, which is seen as mainly affecting richer countries or the rich, which, which again sort of talks about their sort of political shift. They, however, are still sort of branding it as the lowest corporate headline corporate tax rate in the G7. Now, obviously, I assume if you're listening to a podcast on R&D tax credit, you'll be aware that what matters isn't necessarily just the headline rate, but also the base of the tax system. And so my concern, I think, from this has been that, okay, we'll still have a relatively competitive headline rate. It won't be as competitive as it once was, and it will be significantly less competitive than Ireland's corporate tax rate. But also we're going to do this while at the same time having a relatively unfavourable tax base in terms of relatively poor levels of capital cost recovery. And so that is my concern. Now, the super deduction that was announced at the budget, that was very much designed to mitigate that by actually saying, look, we realise that the tax system has in general not been great in terms of investment incentives versus overall just keeping the headline rate down. But the issue is the super deduction is temporary. Maybe this is to sort of create a bit of FOMO and get companies to invest in the short term in the assumption that it might not be there in two years' time. But but the problem with that is that in two years' time, we're effectively going to have a relatively middling tax rate in terms of the rest of the world But at the same time, we're going to have one of the least favourable tax bases in terms of capital cost recovery. So we'll go from a position where we had one side competitive and one side a bit uncompetitive to both sides being relatively uncompetitive. And I think that will have damaging effects on investment. No, that makes sense, right? I think, you know, to your point, the coronavirus has definitely caused governments across the globe to, quote unquote, borrow a lot of money to be able to handle what's been taking place. You mentioned the the competitiveness globally of the tax rate and that increase. And I think to your point, you know, yeah, they're they're trying to say, yes, we're increasing the tax rate, but hopefully we are offering incentives that help bring it back down for various companies. And to your point, I think there is a little bit of a FOMO, as you called it, right? Before this runs out, come and take advantage of this and invest in R&D and let's keep the country going, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Now, It's interesting you say invest in R&D because the way the super deduction works with intangible investment is kind of complicated. And this was an issue that essentially wasn't clarified 
it's an issue where I felt mildly smug because I think some people made proclamations, including people who ran very, very prestigious think tanks in the UK, that essentially that any investments in intangibles wouldn't qualify for the super deduction. Now, my understanding is, so if you're an SME at the moment, and this is before any tax changes have come in, so let's say last year, you have what's called the annual investment allowance. And that allows you to, any investment under a million pounds, you can effectively write off in the first year. Now, if you've invested in intangibles, typically you're meant to go through what's called the intangible scheme. However, you can actually make a declaration And the intangible scheme is important, I think, because it interacts with other parts of the R&D tax system. But if you don't want to do that and you want to benefit from annual investment allowance, perhaps because it's just a lot simpler, you can make a declaration basically to say that your intangible counts as a plant or a machine and it can then qualify as under the annual investment allowance and then you can write that off in the first year. Now, as far as I can tell, and I've not seen any advice to the contrary and I've seen at least a couple tax lawyers at tech firms back me up on this, that's going to be the case for the super deduction. There might be some additional anti-avoidance measures to come in at some point, given that it's a very large tax incentive. But as far as I can tell, you can actually cover intangibles under this. So there was some pessimism with the super deduction and how it affects R&D funding, but I actually think that's a little bit misleading. Thanks for going over that, Sam. Really appreciate it. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai tpu. Let's kind of dive into the R&D credits and the R&D scheme in the UK in general. Could you give us sort of an overview of the credit itself? I know there's an SME portion, there's the large enterprise, the RDEC portion. So if you could kind of give us an overview of that and then tell us your thoughts, you know, is the UK scheme considered a generous R&D scheme? Where does it sit from your perspective and from a lot of the industry perspective that you speak for? So what we have in the UK is... First of all, you can write off R&D costs and you get an 11% credit if you're a large company. But there's also what's known as R&D relief for SMEs, which is a bit more generous. And that's been capped recently because there's been many claims of abuse and of avoidance. And actually, it's quite interesting because I mentioned the the super deduction and kind of that's how the R&D tax credit functions as well, which is the idea that you write off the costs, but you don't write it off at 100%. You write it off at a different percentage. So in the case of the R&D tax relief scheme for SMEs, you write it off at 
130%. So that can be a pretty powerful incentive. So the organization we worked with are talking about R&D tax credit a lot is Kodak. And the issues that they raise and that startups raise is that the key issue is less so the actual rate which is relatively decent. It's gone from 12 to 13%. So that is a nice incentive to invest in R&D. It's that the scope of the R&D tax credit is slightly out of date with what modern companies believe R&D to be. If you go into the, I'll find the, the classic example, there's lots of talks about brown coat and white coat research in the actual R&D guidance. So the example they give when they talk about what R&D research and development means for tax purposes uses the example of a company making DVD players, which obviously is a little bit out of date right now. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's kind of not very well adapted for what you'd call the intangible age. It's not very adapted to kind of how modern research projects take place. A classic example, and actually this was raised to me by a think tank that do a bit more heavy data analysis than we do. So he told me like he wants to do research into big data sets. So if he builds his server himself, he can deduct the physical costs of that server in his big office or whatever. He can deduct those costs as part of the R&D tax credit. Now, that might be expensive because that's not a particularly efficient way of doing your data project. It requires you to have lots of extra space and, you know, it requires you to also manage the server in quite an in-depth way that you might require extra employee time, for instance. Now, he might be thinking, I'd much rather just buy some cloud server space and do some cloud computing instead. Now, if he were to go that route, actually, the data he would be buying, for instance, wouldn't be classed as a consumable. The cloud services wouldn't be classed as a consumable. Or at least if it were classed, there would be some degree of uncertainty that might lead accountants and advisors to say, we're not sure we can claim for all of this or we're a bit cautious on this. So there's a bit of uncertainty there. And because of that, essentially, there's a tax break to quite an inefficient form of research and development, but there isn't a tax break to a much more streamlined way of doing, say, if you're doing machine learning research or working in sort of data science. So I think that is a really, really key issue. Now, there was a, it's quite a funny issue because We've been talking about this since 2019 and other people have been talking about it probably in 2018, 2017. Yet we don't seem to have got much further. It feels like definitely almost everyone thinking about it seems to agree that we need to broaden the scope of the R&D tax credit and work out what qualifying expenditures are. The issue is that it's been an incredibly slow process. And actually, uh, our former Prime Minister, Theresa May, was pretty damning on the government, pretty critical in terms of the post-budget sort of debate, saying that we've had this debate going on for a really long time now. Either get it done or expand the tax credit because you're not going to get sufficient levels of research and development otherwise. That's a really big issue. Another example of the scope being a problem is that you can't really claim for user interface or user experience development work. This, again, doesn't chime with what startups think 
R&D actually looks like. And having this disconnect means there's a really big reliance on tax advisors. So modernising that, I think, would be the really key issue. And again, there was a new consultation announced. We've had quite a few consultations. It does seem each time they get closer and closer, but we're still a few steps away from getting that sorted. I'm pretty optimistic that within the next two years, this will change. And at the very least, there will be an acceptance that it's absurd to say that you can qualify as a consumer boy if you're buying service space, but you can't if you're buying the same service services, but just owned by a different company in a much more efficient, energy efficient data center. So I think that's going to change. And I'm hoping it'll change sooner rather than later. Right. It's this weird sort of perception that you have to do everything from scratch yourself, right? In order to get the same benefit that others who have already done that work, but you can still build off of it. You could rent the server space, right? It's like, okay, we're still using the cloud to do the work. Why do I have to build the server myself to get the credit for it, right? That's a very, very interesting dynamic, of course. I believe Japan, actually, they're much more able to include service costs for IT, big data and things like that, and AI. That's what the sort of broad analysis the startup people we worked with suggested. So there is some divergence. So I think we do have the power to change this. It's just, you know, addressing the bureaucracy and actually saying, okay, something needs to be done now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, when you compare the UK to other countries, right, you compare it to the US, I think there is a lot more clarity with respect to what can be qualified when you look at the the regulations from a US perspective versus the UK. The UK is a volume-based credit, right, whereas the US is an incremental credit. But it also seems like the HMRC is very focused on you know, encouraging businesses to claim, you know, despite all of the illicit claims that have been happening, where, you know, certain companies are, are coming in recently. I've been seeing a lot of articles about how some people are taking advantage in the wrong way of certain benefits. But for the most part, you know, France, I think, has a larger credit, but the refund takes a very, very long time to obtain and, and audits can be a really big challenge. Ireland has similar tax rates, but again, you know, when they audit, you lose about, I think it was about 80,000 euro is the average reduction after an audit, right? So you're seeing a lot of different aspects where, to your point, despite the lack of clarity that exists on a few pieces, it does seem like the structure is there. So when you look at what you're talking about, right, how can we modernize this? How can the UK government work to expand this in the right way? What does that look like from your perspective? I think there are a few things that need to be addressed. So one, expand the scope. We need to include cloud costs we need to include the purchase of data sets which is going to be increasingly key to research and development going forward we need to have at least some understanding of how user interface and user experience development can qualify there is a bit of uncertainty and that requires a excessive reliance on tax advisors and there's a lot of variation so it kind of depends on what your tax advisor thinks they can get away with which creates a system of uncertainty which i don't think is good for encouraging innovation another issue is a lot of startups don't really know enough about the scheme or are put off from the scheme thinking it's overly bureaucratic and essentially unless they have like they pay an accountant who might actually reduce the value of that whole process for them. They might think, is it really worth it? So I think it needs to be more proactively promoted. We, I can give you an anecdote where I was at the 
maybe a year and a bit, maybe two years now, I was at the Christmas party for TransferWise, which is a really big payments company in, in London, and they're pretty global. And their, I think it was their CEO or one of their head of research or something, someone pretty senior was saying, we actually had made our claims for R&D tax credit until we'd, you know, already had 100 million worth of payments going through our network. So you kind of see that if very small businesses, ambitious research-heavy businesses aren't really looking at R&D tax credit till they get substantially big enough that their accounting team is really thinking about it, then there's a problem. And I think part of the way you can improve that is by improving the quality of self-regulation among R&D tax credit advisors. A lot of the startups in our network and that we've spoken to have suggested concerns that it can be a bit of a minefield you might get the wrong person and as a result you might either have claims that are eventually rejected which makes it very hard to plan or they might take too big a cut from the tax credit which kind of undermines the system after all we're trying to encourage companies to do r&d we're not trying to subsidize tax credit advisors ultimately note to multinational companies everywhere if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world and where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue that's right your transfer pricing you can't afford to be non-compliant but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either oops sorry big four we've got the answer cross-border solutions ai powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits penalties and adjustments and our technology is available for one flat fee a fraction of what you'd pay a big name consultant again apologies big four stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions ai driven transfer pricing software it's no wonder we're the global leader in ai driven tax solutions there we go again i'm so sorry big you know what wait who am i kidding sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai tp that's xbs.ai tp Sam, thanks for giving your thoughts on, you know, where some some limitations exist and how they can be expanded or modernized to, to really fit what this process could look like. So how does the new finance bill maybe address some of these things or, or reform some things related to R&D in general? So what we got at the budget, which is our annual finance bill, and then we got also 20 days later on what was hyped as tax day, which kind of was pretty exciting for accountants, but wasn't as newsworthy as perhaps it was previously hyped as, looked at basically reviewing the scope of the relief, which is in the right direction. Again, it's a bit too slow, but it is moving in the right direction. And they expanded that consultation so it will cover other aspects of the R&D tax credit. So hopefully a lot of these policy wishes of mine will be included. And I know there's substantial effort to make the case and lots of different organizations have been really pitching in on that. Excellent. So the next piece that was mentioned by the finance minister was also an initiative called Future Fund, right? Breakthrough, you know, kind of sounds like a a sci-fi film, but what is the fund and, and what's the intention behind it? It might be worth stepping back to March and April last year 
So there was a lot of concern that there was going to be a sort of death wave of deaths among startups. So lots of startups with venture capital funding reaching the end of their funding line and lots of VCs sort of worried by the uncertainty, pulling funding or not choosing to reinvest. So what the government did, and this was kind of, we had quite a big role. It was called the Save Our Startups campaign. We argued that there needed to be some sort of co-investment as a crisis measure. The way it was structured is as a contingent debt deal. So effectively, it's equity, that sorry, convertible debt deal. So it's, it's a debt deal that's a bit more like equity for companies who need equity and aren't necessarily profitable at the moment, but have high prospects of profit. What essentially happened is the government did matched investment alongside VCs mainly, but also included some angel investors. You had to meet various requirements. So you had to have, I think it was something like £250,000 of investment. It might have only been 100000 I know there's some debate over that, to have already received that. So it's kind of to keep the runway going. And what happened was the scheme was very popular. It seemed that a lot of different startups were able to benefit from it. The government now has potentially stakes in lots and lots of different companies around the UK, very small stakes. I assume they'll sell as soon as a company makes an exit or has a realisable event. They do have those stakes. I think it was seen as a success in terms of it meant that the UK's level of VC funding didn't drop in the way that people expected it to, and that there was still forward momentum in terms of venture capital investment. Now, I think this year, they're thinking about, okay, how can we improve that sort of late stage finance option? One of the big policy concerns in the UK is that if you really want to grow as a company, at some point you move to the US. And obviously, that's not great for jobs in the UK. Let's say the the next Google or Facebook or whatever is built in the UK, chances are they'll end up employing mostly people in America or in California. That's not really what government wants. So what you need to do is make it so that you can stay in the UK longer and actually go public in the UK and we can actually provide that really late stage finance. And that's what the Future Fund Breakthrough is designed to do. You brought up a really, really good point, right? If a lot of the early stage development and investments taking place within the UK and then all of a sudden you have companies sort of jump ship, right, and hop across to the US and, and really balloon from there, you're losing a lot of thousands of jobs potentially, right, that, that come with sort of these explosive growth firms that, that then come here to the US and go public, right? Yeah, I think that's definitely a big concern among policymakers. Chances are, if you have a meeting with a UK small business minister, they'll repeat a line that is a little bit of a cliche, but they say the UK is great at starting businesses. We have a pretty decent business start rate and seems to have improved in recent years. But we're not as good at scaling businesses. So they also refer to what's called the long tail. So this is, if you were to plot all of the UK's businesses on a bell curve, a normal distribution, what it looks like essentially at the higher end of productivity to the right, you have like a big chunk of firms that are very productive, that are just as productive as the most productive firms in any other country. And then you have this big hump towards the end, which is known as the long tail. It should be called the big hump, really, but 
that's kind of another issue of companies that are SMEs that, for whatever reason, are not as productive as companies further along. If productivity was more evenly distributed, for instance, the UK's economy would look very different. And we tend to have a worse problem with this than other countries. And it's quite interesting because in the UK, people typically look to Europe and Germany uh, and the way they're good at sort of diffusing good business practices. They talk about the middle sound of those sort of strong, small to medium sized businesses that are very highly productive. The US also seems to do that, perhaps more through sort of more aggressive competition, perhaps. But the UK, for whatever reason, we don't seem to be able to lift these companies to be as productive as the most productive companies. And that gap seems to be getting bigger. That's one of the major policymaker concerns. And I think that factors into the broader thinking that we need to make sure that we're not just good at starting businesses in the UK, we're also good at scaling them up. And that's going to require ensuring that they've got adequate access to capital, which policies like the Future Fund, but also R&D tax credit, also the super deduction, will all play important roles in. Absolutely. So when you look at the finance bill, you know, aside from the Future Fund breakthrough and, and some of the other aspects we've already talked about, there's also an aim at expanding EMI, right, or enterprise management incentives, which from our research hasn't really changed in, what, 10, 20 years? So in, I think in February, there were, I think, eight bodies of British industry that urged Chancellor Sunak to enhance the UK credit regime. How have those bodies reacted to the £65 billion budget? So, yeah, the EMI point is interesting. So EMI, for those who don't know, is essentially the way we tax stock options in small businesses, small to medium-sized businesses. And what we've argued is that there is a lot of scope for expanding it. So the actual figures in terms of the size of a company that qualifies in terms of headcount, but also in terms of revenues, hasn't changed in a very long time. Now, the UK, I think the EMI scheme is pretty good in general. It's very generous, certainly. I think it compares favourably to pretty much any scheme in the world. I know some European countries have just changed things. I know the EU is actually as a whole, you know, standardise the rules and stock options so that they can have a lot more cross-border startup activity. But as far as I can tell, the UK is a pretty good system. But where we've fallen behind is that the limits we place on EMI in terms of the size of the company and in terms of the revenue of the company effectively mean that these sort of mid-tier scale-ups, so you might not quite be a unicorn, but you might be close, you're growing really fast and you want to offer stock options to your employees. You'll have to do that outside the EMI scheme if you grow very, very quickly. And that becomes a bit of a problem in terms of competing for international talent because the UK's tax rates are higher than in the US. If you're earning a good developer salary, your marginal tax rate will be 40%. If bizarrely, if you earn, I think, 100K, you end up having your personal allowance withdrawn away and you briefly pay something like 60%. And then if you earn more, you you go into the 45% rate. And this is a bit of a problem because essentially, if we want to attract a highly skilled, very mobile, we need to have a competitive system on stock options. And the evidence on stock options is really interesting. So 
a researcher called Magnus Henriksen from Sweden looked at the relationship between venture capital investment and the average tax rate and stock options. And he found a really, really strong relationship. The lower your stock option tax rate, the more venture capital investment. Interestingly, what happened, it wasn't necessarily just venture capital investment. What he found essentially is that it affects the demand for entrepreneurship. So when you have a favorable stock option regime, people are much more likely to start equity-backed businesses. They're much more likely to start you know, high-growth tech businesses. And that's what we ultimately want in the UK because they're going to be the ones that lift our productivity levels, lift our living standards, end up paying a lot of tax and create a lot of jobs. And that's why we need to expand the EMI. And I, I, I feel like that will happen. That's my prediction at least. But hopefully it will happen sooner rather than later. Great point. And I think those types of incentives are, are usually the, the core, right? As you mentioned, of a startup firm, right? They don't necessarily have the capital to pay salaries all the time. So how you get people incentivized is through these, these management incentives, right? Stock options and, and equity and things like that. So good point. And it seems like, to your point, a lot of the industry leaders are recognizing or at least giving credit to the government and saying, look, you know, you're recognizing that innovation is key. You're recognizing that our industries really do drive growth within the country. And if you don't incentivize it, then, you know, to your point earlier, Sam, right, you're going to have these companies grow to a certain level and then shift over to a different environment or a different country or tax scheme that's going to be better suited for them to grow, right? Yeah, definitely. I think in as part of a broader government agenda on research and development and science, so we're seeing a big expansion in public R&D spending, So government just spending directly on funding research, that's going up significantly. We're also trialling more innovative ways of doing research and development. So we've recently set up what's called ARIA, which is basically trying to be the UK's equivalent of ARPA. So you're having kind of a less, hopefully a less bureaucratic, more cutting edge research agency. That's potentially very interesting. We'll see if it pans out you might not see the results whether or not it pans out for 20 years i mean after that you know people credit that with the development of the internet but obviously that took a whole whole long while to actually get there that is another policy and it all comes down to this big target the uk has set so uk has lower r&d levels as a proportion of gdp than a lot of places Our ambition as a country is to, well, the government's ambition for the country, I should say, is to raise that to 2.4%, which would put us in line with the OECD average. There Mm -hmm. are some pushing for further R&D, so some say we should be targeting 3% of GDP. But to get that done, you need, that can't be done through public R&D alone because that's already going up quite substantially, that needs to include private R&D. And that's why R&D tax credit is really important. It's really important that we make sure that that's fit for purpose. It's really important that we also make sure that the companies that do a lot of R&D, also the tax system is generally favourable to them. So that means getting EMI right, expanding that. also means just making it easier to hire researchers from outside the UK, Often when you talk to research intensive startups, one of their key barriers is talent. You know, these people can typically command pretty decent salaries, especially in the US, which we have to compete with for that talent. So making it easier to come in terms of fixing the immigration system so that 
students and PhD students can stay in the UK a lot longer once they graduate or finish their course, making it easier so that the hiring process isn't as complex. So previously we had free movement with the EU, which entrepreneurs generally saw as a massive boon, especially tech companies. Mm-hmm. But now, hopefully, the sort of points-based system we're moving to simplifies the regime for immigration outside the EU as well. So hopefully that can allow the UK to hire a lot more people, especially in tech, that they would have previously had a lot of difficulty with. So that's another key part. And it all factors into this sort of general vision of the UK as being a science superpower, a place where you know, our impact on the world is primarily because we're incredibly inventive. And, you know, you can talk to things like the UK's Maxine from Oxford, the fact we've got DeepMind based in London. So we have some real strengths in innovation. We do have, I think, maybe Stanford and Harvard and MIT might disagree, but some of the top universities in the world, whether or not they're the top two, but they're, they're usually up there close to the top. So mm-hmm. that itself is potentially building on those strengths is key. Absolutely. What if there's not any academic competition, right? So there's always going to be that level of who's the best. So, you know, we've been talking a lot about the expansion and a lot of things that are happening and changes and and modernizations that could be relevant. But very curiously, within the recent change from the finance minister, there's also a cap on the amount that small and mid-sized enterprises, right, SMEs, there's a cap on that, you know, R&D tax credit that they can receive in any one year. So we've been talking about, you know, expanding everything, making it more advantageous. Why limit the benefit, if you will, for SMEs? I think it's a sort of classic trade-off in policy, and we see this in other tax reliefs, that you can have a generous tax relief, but then that creates an incentive for people to abuse the tax relief. So... A good example of this is what we call the Seed Enterprise Investment Scheme. It's a way, basically, of offsetting capital gains tax for investments in high-growth, early-stage businesses. It comes with some just very big income tax relief. Also, it comes with very generous loss protection. A company has to lose a lot of money before you're substantially worse off. So it's, it's a very attractive tax relief. And because it's so attractive, there are two risks. One, that the EU would have said it was state aid. And if you fall foul of those regulations, then the whole scheme can be struck down. And two, the exchequer will just lose a lot of revenue to kind of complex sort of gaming of the system. Now, the way they get around that is by creating all these strict requirements, caps, and the like to prevent that from happening. So the idea is we want a generous R&D tax credit system, but we also want to make sure that companies don't abuse it. And getting that balance right is really important. I know this was a controversial issue with startups. Ultimately, I think it's probably not the ideal way of preventing avoidance, but I mean, it's incumbent kind of on accounting bodies and startups to come up with a easier way where perhaps you can still allow more investment. And obviously the the cap doesn't apply to every single type of startup. So really research intensive ones can sort of still benefit from that. Right, there's I think a couple of like exemptions, right? So if you're creating, preparing or managing intellectual property, or if you're not spending, I think more than 15% on subcontractors or EPWs, right? Externally provided workers. So it seems like they're definitely trying to create some exemptions within but to your point, you know, maybe not the best way to limit abuse or taking advantage of it. 
Yeah, I think that's the case. I think that's the main issue is that finding those solutions is actually really important part of tax policy that's kind of underplayed because it's it's less about coming up with the broad sort of economic picture and more about actually ensuring that the scheme is well administrated. And, you know, in the case of the seed enterprise investment scheme, which is really substantial and does seem to drive a lot of venture capital investment, what we see there is that one of the big pushes is just to say there should be deadlines on how long HMRC can sit on your application, more investment in HMRC so that actually the people can deal with your claims quicker and also that they can provide you with feedback. And I think that's a really important issue that is often underplayed, but it'd be so much more beneficial for startups if, when they're rejected for an R&D tax credit submission, that actually they get told why they were rejected and what Absolutely. they could have changed. And that doesn't really happen at the moment, but it could happen in theory. And I think a lot of startups believe that that would be really beneficial. No, I definitely agree. Giving more guidance so that for two things, right? Number one, more companies feel comfortable claiming it, right? There's more stability in the in the regime, if you will. And then number two, it also helps to mitigate the cost and effort to audit and review because there's so much, you know, lack of clarity around how to claim and what can be claimed, right? So absolutely agree with you. So, you know, we're, we're looking at all these different incentives, right? You've got the deduction, super deduction, you've got the credit, you've got all these different things. So why does the UK tend to have multiple incentives as opposed to making one, you know, sort of larger scheme that's especially generous? What's the advantage of this sort of multifaceted approach, I guess, that seems to be a little bit complex? I suppose the logic is about making it targeted and solving specific problems. So the super deduction, which is essentially full expensing because you have to remember that with the UK's corporate tax rate rising, the value of 130% deduction, if you're going from 19 to 25% tax, if that's when you're going to realise those profits, is actually much smaller. And actually, it's kind of almost like the experience of full expensing. That's one reason that you want to solve a specific problem to do with capital allowances. There's obviously a policy bias towards small business. And I think one of the reasons, again, that might come out of state aid rules in terms of what governments can do and can't do depends on the size of the company they're dealing with. But also with the things seed enterprise investment scheme, enterprise investment scheme and venture capital trusts, the, the logic here is how can the UK essentially deal with all of these issues in terms of venture capital funding because we know how important that is for growth but without just doing a broad-based cut to capital gains tax even though the uk is pretty low capital gains tax rate i think the idea is they want to target that support directly at those companies at the margin who will generate the most growth and jobs so you know, we've covered a lot today and, and all of the above considered that we've, we've talked about, right? The finance bill in general. In your opinion, do you feel that the UK's finance bill will achieve, you know, these ambitious aims to stimulate R&D investments, but, you know, hopefully restore public finances from the deficit due to the pandemic? Do you think this is all going to achieve its goals? What are your thoughts there? Personally, what I would have done is I wouldn't have done a super deduction. I would have done full expensing. I would have probably, if it were me, I would have moved quicker on expanding the scope for R&D tax with it. I think the time for talk on that subject is over. I don't think the fiscal retrenchment is necessary at this stage. 
while there's still a lot of uncertainty about the size of the UK's recovery, and there's potentially prospects that we'll have a really strong year of growth on account of the pretty impressive vaccination campaign. I'm not super supportive of the budget, even though I think some of the steps like the super production are moves in the right direction and recognition of the importance of things like capital allowances in terms of how they affect incentives. But again, we have a finance bill every year. Sometimes we have two a year. We've had two a year pretty much every other year, I think for the past sort of 10 years or so. So it's very likely we'll get another round the corner and there's always time to fix some of these things. No, thank you very much for sharing your opinion and thank you very, very much for spending the time with us today. No problem, it's great to be here. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. Welcome back, everyone. We'd like to thank Sam Dimitriou and Rahim Walji, along with our audience at home, for joining us. Don't forget to check out the entire suite of Cross Border Solutions Tax Podcasts on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This podcast was hosted by Matthew DeMello, edited and produced by Matthew DeMello and Andrew O'Donnell. Stephen Markow is our associate producer and writes our scripts. We'll catch everyone next time. <laughs>